0: This is Resonance 104.4 FM. How you doing? I'm Nick Hennigan and this is Literary London, where we talk about things literary and Londony. Now, if you were with me last time, you'll know oh, we played a recording of a thing called the Speakeasy Cabaret, which I set up. The first half, a uh, spoken word event. The first half is anyone that wants to get involved, and the second half is usually a top name from the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and I thought I'd play some of these for you again, because let's face it, when did you last go down a pub? If you want to hear part one with two new speakers, then uh, check it out on the uh, podcast, uh, both at Residence and not LondonLiteraryPopCrawl.com website. Um, but here is part two. There's a brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, piece from Zoe Antonaris, who's a, a writer who came to the Speakeasy Cabaret and ended up getting two a two-book deal out of it, which is fantastic. But first of all, rather unusually, I decided to do a little reading. Oh, yes. You see, when I first started the Maverick Theatre Company in Birmingham back in 1994, uh, we did a newsletter. Um, This was doing pub theatre, which didn't exist in Birmingham. theatre for people that didn't go to the theatre, which was my background. And it went down really, really well. So a few years later, in 1997, I wrote another play, which was originally going to be a version of A Christmas Carol, which is why the characters in it are called Bob and Tim. Um, And it turned out to be a sort of a family drama. One of the reviewers described it as a cross between Faust and the film Poltergeist. Uh, It was called A Ghost of a Chance. And while I was doing it, keeping on with that notion of communicating with an audience... I guess nowadays I'd have done it as a blog. But you didn't in 1997. So I wrote a daily diary. And the idea was that this daily diary would be... um, It's a stream of consciousness, really. And it would be published on the opening night of A Ghost of a Chance. So it was the process of getting this play on... With uh, fortunately, we we won an award from um, the Guinness Award through the Royal National Theatre. We got some money from the Arts Council and from Birmingham City Council. I got quite a famous actor in Paul Henry, forever known as Benny from Crossroads, uh, and a young boy called Justin Luke Towler. So it was the process of getting this play on. It went all over the place. And so I thought on the Speakeasy Cabaret, I'd read an extract from The Making of a Ghost of a Chance or how to make a crisis out of a drama. Summer, June uh, 1997, another new month. Today, I watched the film Tom and Viv with the lovely Miranda Richardson and the other bloke, Defoe or something. But I'm so in love with Miranda, I'm blind to any other performance. I checked to see if she has hairy arms. That's a reference to an earlier thing with one of the boys getting. Anyway, I'm blind. I checked it. It's another slightly sad film. Tom and Viv is about the poet T.S. Eliot and his wife. Not surprisingly, she's called Viv. Yes, hence Tom and Viv. It's their story, and a pretty sad one it is for the Viv of the title. She ends up being committed to a lunatic asylum, and it turns out her only problem is what my mum would have called an overactive imagination and a hormone imbalance. Oh, my mother counts me as one of the sufferers of an overactive imagination, by the way. Although I think my hormones have always been okay. Uh, And I don't think my family's ever tried to have me certified insane and sent to an institution. Although I need to be a bit careful about this statement. Uh, Even though I am obviously very near perfect. I am aware of having, how shall I say, given my parents, particularly my mother, an interesting life. How? Well, two quick examples. My first day at school, I was born in August and was therefore cursed to be the youngest child in the year throughout my school life. So I started school at barely five years old. <clears throat> my mum takes me to Miss Eden's class at Wheeler's Lane Infants in Birmingham. Miss Eden was a dear, sweet woman who I'm sure was at least 150 years of age. My mum picks me up from school after the first day and the conversation goes something like this. Me. <clears throat> Alright, mum. So how was school, Nick? Me. Oh, yeah, great. Mum. You're a very grown-up boy now, aren't you? Me. Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> Mum. So you had a nice time at school? Me. Yes. Yes, I did. Mum. So you're looking forward to going to again, again, again tomorrow, are you? Me. Tomorrow? Oh, no, 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 no. Today was very nice, but I'm not going there again. <laughs> so I was as good as my word, and as a result, my poor mother spent the next six months strapping me into my sister's pram and wheeling her prisoner to school every morning. The frail Miss Eden and Mrs Hennigan could be seen at 8.55 each day dragging, and I mean literally dragging, a sobbing five-year-old up the ramp to the door of the reception class. I was a big lad for my age. For some strange reason, once I was inside the front door, I knew I was beaten and just got on with being a school kid. I never tried to run away. I just saved me energy for the next morning. So I wept all the way to school, and my sister Fiona, who's 14 months younger than I am, used to weep all the way home from school because she wanted to stay with me too. Poor mother, really. I wasn't bad, I just didn't want to go to school. I think it's because mum had made such a comfortable home life for us. So it was her fault, really. Plus the fact that my sister and I were very close and had never been separated until the education department stepped in. Years later, I actually found some letters my mother had written to various mothering magazines, desperately appealing for some help or advice with her strange youngest son. But she dealt with it on her own, with Dad working all hours. Poor Mum. The things kids get up to today. I wonder how this peculiar behaviour would have been dealt with today. I can't help but think that the system may have rallied round Mum and not left it to her and the diminutive Miss Eden. The second example concerns me leaving home at the age of 16. That in itself is not too bad, but I left home to live with a woman of 38. Another trauma for Dear Mum, and a story I think perhaps I should leave for another time. (laughs) So back to Tom and Viv. It reminded me about an experience when I was working at BRMB, the main commercial radio station in the Midlands. I was doing production on the mid-morning show with another presenter called Nick Meanwell. Nick's in Holland now, I think. At the time, our ratings were rather good, and we were filling five mornings a week with that euphemistic mix of music and conversation, so typical of local radio in the early 1980s. When the rules stated you might be a commercial radio station, but you also had to broadcast speech, religion and classical music. Nick and I started to get lots of appeals from organisations to make PAs, public appearances. If you were clever, you could make more money from your PAs than you did from your radio station. But I've always been a soft touch and could never resist an appeal from a charity. I think much of that came from the sheer amazement that anyone would think my presence would make any difference. Les Ross who still does the breakfast show on Beer and sorted me out a few years later when I began presenting shows in my own right. But again, that's another story. We were asked to go to a hospital in Hatton, near Warwick. They'd asked us to come to an event they were holding. It was a mental hospital, and they wanted the two Nicks to open their event. Yes, yeah, quite. Uh, I know exactly what you're thinking. I did quite a few events at that time with Meanwell as the two Nicks. It was a sort of an unrehearsed double act, and I always came off worse. If it was a carnival, it was always me who ended up in the stocks, while Meanwell threw wet sponges at my head during one event with the then world judo champion Brian Jacks, Meanwhile, he was supposed to be doing a demonstration with him, disappeared from the stage completely when he was called. So I had to do it. Uh, No one could find him. I ended up breaking two ribs. You could tell which of of the two of us had a degree, couldn't you? (laughs) Me and he was no fool. So we arrived at the hospital and we did our usual, I declare this fair open stuff. Uh, For once, there was nothing around that could damage me, which I was quite grateful for. The patients were all very elderly. And it was obvious the hospital was a very happy place. The head geezer was showing us around the hospital when we came across a little party on one of the wards. A bunch of patients and staff were gathered around one elderly lady who was sitting in a high-backed chair. It was her 90th birthday. She had obviously prepared for the event and was dressed in a Sunday best with some small pieces of attractive jewellery. Uh, there was tea and cups and saucers and a fruit cake sitting on top of a cake stand. There were dollies and white napkins, and the woman, Alice, I think her name was, was having a grand old time. The hospital had obviously made a real effort, and it was heartwarming to see that Alice was receiving all this care and attention. Say what you might about the state of the NHS, and you cannot criticise the staff. There were warm smiles everywhere, and the little party was gentle and genteel. I had a brief chat with Alice. She was obviously quite institutionalised, and she told me she'd been at Hatton Rock for over 70 years. The nursing staff encouraged her. One nurse said, oh, we always make a fuss of Alice. She's been here longer than anyone and she's very special to us. Alice beamed with pride and happiness. And she showed me the brooch her daughter had bought her sometime in the 1940s. After a while, we left the little party and I, I could understand why the staff were so fond of Alice. She was lovely. But one thing bothered me. I, I couldn't understand why Alice had been at the hospital for so long, particularly given her daughter's obvious affection. Was there some complaint that had not manifested itself while we were talking to her? I asked the doctor on the way out. Illness, he said. Oh no, there's no medical reason for Alice to be with us. She's still here because we are her life. She's been here so long, she would find it difficult to function outside the institution. Having opened the fate, I felt I could question further. I still wasn't clear on the situation. So, but why did she come to this hospital in the first place, I asked. Well, I've seen the records, the doctor said. Obviously we keep in touch with her. She was uh, certified and committed under the Lunacy Act by her mother. This sounded a bit dramatic. The lunacy act, I retorted. What was the problem? What did she do? It was lunatic. No, said the doctor gently, you don't understand. Alice has never had any mental illness, but she became pregnant at 15. And, I said, and that's it, replied the doctor, He shook his head sadly. She got pregnant and her mother had her committed. She gave birth to her daughter here at the hospital. The child was adopted and died of old age two years ago. Alice has never spent a night away from here since she was 15. But there was no mental problem, she just got preg- pregnant. The two Nicks were very quiet on the drive back to Birmingham. Very quiet. And that's the end of our little story. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there we go that. that's school time. Um, uh, but now we're in for a real treat. It's going to end the first half, as it were, uh, with, with Zoe. I'll let Zoe introduce herself, but she's brilliant. Hooray, come on, Zoe. <laughs>
1: And this is a bit from my memoir, uh, Tea Impact Lavas, which sort of tells the story of a dysfunctional Greek Cypriot family surviving life in West London with plenty of plate smashing, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Although um, this extract I'm reading, I sort of chose because I know um, Nick and Maverick are crowdfunding for sort of a big community theatre project in West London at the moment. And, um, this was a time when I got involved in a sort of community youth theater in Richmond but I don't think I think I was the only child of working class parents at that youth theater so it was a little bit less inclusive perhaps than yours although I did have a lot of fun there and I met a kind of interesting friend through that which kind of the next pages of this memoir look at, so less of the dysfunctional Greek family in this, but a bit more about me and this friend I met, and youth theatre of West London in the day. Andreas had his rugby and football, Delphi had her hockey and netball, but I didn't enjoy sports. The only thing I was good at when it came to PE was faking excuse notes from my mum. (laughs) My thing was drama. I loved being in school plays, and because I had a loud voice, I usually got a decent part. I was in my final year at Twickenham Vale, working towards my GCSEs, when Miss Chilcott, my English teacher, came over to me one morning with a leaflet. It's for a drama group. Thought it might interest you, Zoe. The Cherry Grove Youth Theatre. They're starting up in Richmond this month. The Cherry Grove? Isn't that where you took us to see Death of a Salesman? That's the place. A very well-respected fringe theatre it is too. And they're letting us kids in. We had a, look, a closer look at the leaflet. Seems as though the workshops aren't going to be held in the actual theatre itself, but at a nearby community hall, said Miss Chilcot. There's a promise of a production in the real space in the summer, though, once your exams are over. Looks all right, doesn't it? Do you think I'll be good enough? I said. You'll be absolutely fine, Zoe. You should go for it. I think I just might, I said. It was a Thursday night, the first session. No one else from my school was going along, but I didn't mind too much. I could be brave about meeting new people, and I liked the idea of doing something different for myself. All the same, my heart raced when I got into the hall and peered around the massive wooden front door. The room was huge with a high beam ceiling. It was a cold, darkish space with walls of dull green and dirty beige. The curtains a dusty brown hung limply from the tall windows. A number of youths were already there. The leaflet said 14 to 21-year-olds. Some of them looked quite a lot older than me. They hung about on broken velour sofas and armchairs. Everyone was either trying to be cool or funny. A lanky boy with a mop of curly hair was playing on an out-of-tune piano, and a blonde girl who looked like she had a bad smell under her nose started (laughs) singing some blues thing. She made out she was improvising, a natural talent, but I suspected she'd been practising in front of the mirror for months. (laughs) Everyone clapped when she got to the end and told how marvellous she was, but they didn't sound like they meant (laughs) it. I looked around to see who was in charge. A woman in baggy tie-dye trousers and a floppy shirt flounced about, clapping rhythms in the air, trying to get people together, so I assumed it must be her. Is, is this the Cherry Grove Youth Theatre? I asked. Yes, yes, do come in. We're just about to start. Then she projected her voice across the hall as if she were treading the boards of the Olivier itself. OK, folks, let's all gather round and sit in a circle. The wooden floor had long lost its varnish, I was cold and gritty. I wanted to leave, but everything had gone quiet and an attempt to escape would have been too obvious. Okay, guys, now that we're all in a circle, though judging how long that talk, I wonder how we'll ever manage to get you rowdy rabble to follow real directions, said the leader person with a comedy glare. Everyone laughed. I just not, she put her hand to her chest and pulled a silly face, cueing further laughter. Anywho, as I was saying, now that we're all together, I thought it best we get to know one another. A successful drama company depends on trust. So, she whisked out a beanbag from one of her giant pockets. Time for a bit of bonding. I was intrigued as to how a beanbag might make me belong to this group. First things first, names. For those of you who don't already know, I'm Pippa. She threw the beanbag across the room to the lanky piano boy who caught it with an exaggerated expression of surprise. Now, you have to say your name and throw the beanbag to someone else, Pippa explained. The boy looked puzzled. Perhaps I wasn't the only one who felt a little lost here after all. What's your name, darling? Pippa prompted him. Tristan. OK, then, Tristan. So, you say... Tristan, loud and clear as you like, then choose another person. Tristan finally got the plot.
0: <laughs>
1: Tristan, he said, chucking it over to the blonde blues singer girl. Martha, she cried, throwing it to a lad in a bowie t shirt. Nat, he said, short for Nathan, but everyone calls me Nat. He passed it to a very thin girl who was sitting directly opposite me in the circle. She was the skinniest person I'd ever seen, with dead straight black hair, huge eyes and pouty lips, which stood out because they were the only normal-sized feature on her shrunken, (laughs) bony face. She wasn't dressed in the latest fashions, must have assembled her outfit to be different on purpose because it was very noticeable. I think she was going for the bohemian look. She wore stripy tights, chunky Doc Martens and had a gathered skirt. Her collarbones stuck out over the neckline of her vintage blouse. Too thin, but striking. And pretty too, in spite of being 90% skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) She caught my eye and smiled. I smiled back. She called out her name and threw the beanbag over to me. That's how I learned that the skinny girl's name was Tess. Tess disappeared after that first Jerry Grove drama workshop, but I stuck with it and found that most of the other kids were all right once I got to know them. When the GCSE exams were over, the summer holidays began and we got to move from the grotty community hall to the theatre itself. We sat on wooden benches and window seats surrounding the small stage area. As you can see, Pippa explained, we call this space. Theatre in the round. The actors so much more exposed. A wonderful challenge for you all. Everyone had their serious listening faces on, extra keen as our play hadn't been cast yet. Actually, it hadn't even been written. It will be a devised piece, said Pippa. We shall workshop everyone's marvellous ideas, guided by yours truly, of course. She put her hand to her chest and gave a small bow, and we all laughed in a sucky-uppy way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and
1: I shall be scripting it as we go along. Hmm. Now, points of focus. Who can tell me where they think the most dominant place is? Tristan called out, which was annoying, because we all wanted to answer. Centre stage, he said, all full of himself. You may think so, but I'm afraid you're wrong, darling, said Pippa. Tristan was deflated, and I was secretly pleased. There was an eager raising of hands again. ''Do you think you could tell us, Surrey?'' said Pippa. ''It's over there,'' I pointed to the diagonal to the furthest edge of the circle. ''Wonderful, you're absolutely right.'' shame, Tristan.'' <laughs> Pippa leapt over to the space I'd mentioned and struck a pose. ''When the audience is sitting in the round and the actor is here,'' He can be seen from here, Pippa pirouetted over to one side of the room, and here, she waltzed over to sit on the bench next to Tristan, fluffing up his curly hair, and even here, she strode across to the main entrance, where the sight lines are particularly tricky. (laughs) Pippa was interrupted by a knock at the door. It made her jump with extra special melodrama. (laughs) Now, let this be a lesson to you. In the professional theatre, lateness will not be tolerated. She opened the door, and on seeing who it was, changed her tone. But I suppose today we can make an extra exception. She stepped aside to allow the latecomer through. It was Tess. So pleased to have you join us again, darling, said Pippa, gesturing for Tess to take a seat. There's a fair amount of whispering, and everyone shifted up on the benches, competing to make space for Tess. But she looked over their heads, floated into the room, and sat beside me. Me! Pippa took centre stage and launched into a monologue about how a device piece works. I turned to Tess. All right, I said. I've been ill, she said, dipping her huge eyes. What sort of ill? I whispered. (laughs) Tess fiddled with her necklace. Those collarbones of hers stuck out so much it looked painful. She twisted a giant silver ring round her bony finger. You do look like you lost a lot of weight, I said. Tess smiled slightly. Almost took it as a compliment, I think. Mm. I'm getting better now, though, she twitched. She didn't look it to me. Still as skinny as ever. If this was better, how bad must she have been? Well, that's good, I said. She held on to my hand. I gave it a squeeze. I'll look after you. Don't worry, I said. She smiled. How comes everyone wants you to sit with them anyway, I asked. "Oh, my dad was an actor in the 70s. My mother's an actress. And my stepdad, he's a producer at the BBC. Oh, that's good, I said. Everybody stared at Tess. Tess? stared into space. Right folks, Pippa said, clicking her fingers over her head as she got us all onto our feet. Let's get acquainted with our theatre home. She made us lie on our backs, close our eyes and listen to the sounds within and beyond the room. Then we had to do the rolling around on the floor exercises that Pippa was always so keen on. I hated that part, all those smelly bare feet in my face. (laughs) Okay, everyone, a little trust exercise before we start on our improvisations. Get yourself into two rows facing each other. That's it, that's it. Pippa had us take it in turns to stand on the bench and fall into each other's arms. Everyone wanted to catch Tess. When she landed across us, I noticed just how light and fragile she was. At the end of the workshop, Tess took my arm and pulled me to one side. Zoe, I, you can say no if you like, but... Oh, spit it out, then, I said. Tess looked wounded. Sorry, I said. Go on. Well, Larry's away with the beeb on a recce. I presumed Larry was the stepdad. And Mummy's in Birmingham on a shoot. And there's this friend of hers, Auntie Pat, who she sends round to stay with me a bit babyish, I thought. We were sixteen. Our mum had been leaving us on our own for years. But then, Tess had been ill. Anyway, auntie packed a frightful pain in the neck and, well, I wondered if you wanted to sleep over instead. She crossed her fingers. Course I will, I said. Tess threw her bony arms around me. She had a strong grip for someone so delicate. Zoe, you are a treasure, she said. She needed me and that felt good. Plus, I was curious to see what the house of a celebrity family was like. "'Where do you live, then?' I asked. "'Groove Park Terrace,' she said. "'No way! That's practically round the corner from mine. "'I live on Cedars Road.' "'Cedars Road?' Near Sutton Court Lane, opposite the car showroom?' "'Oh, of course, on the motorway.' "'Yeah, a bit, bit noisy and all that, but we've got double glazing, "'so you can't hear the traffic when you're inside,' I said.' "'Of course,' she said again. "'Tessie's house was taller than the trees, "'with a huge, arched windows shaped like fans at the top. "'A front door twice as wide as ours "'opened onto a lobby with an ornately tiled floor. "'It was smartly done inside, but not too flash.' cream-coloured carpets and beige walls, framed prints of stills from films and TV shows, and posters from museums and art galleries from all over Europe. A staircase wound around the centre of the house, leading down as well as up. I gazed up through the centre of it, couldn't even count how many floors there were. You've got a really nice house, I said. Thanks, said Tess, dumping a bag on the floor and throwing a poncho over a chair. I hung my jacket up on the coat pegs and followed her into the kitchen. I might have to nip back home in a bit and get some clothes and stuff for tomorrow, I said. Oh, let's have a coffee first, she said, putting the kettle on. Yeah, that'd be great. I don't take milk, though, I said. Oh, neither do I. Not because there's calories or anything, I just can't stand the taste. Not that there's less calories or anything. Fewer, Tess said what fewer calories not less calories oh right yeah tess laughed i'm sorry you have to forgive me i get it from my mother she's a grammar freak and now it's rubbing off on me oh the shame <laughs> oh that's all right i said i must sound like the cream to you she said oh you have a beautiful voice i said better than mine yes I've never had a cockney friend before. I didn't think I was a cockney. They come from East End, don't they? I said. Well, it's just, you say me-york for milk and cloves instead of cloves. She explained as she poured hot water into a real coffee in a real cafetiere. It's just London speak, isn't it? I said. ''Oh, never mind,'' said Tess. ''Bagel? You having one?'' I asked. ''Nah,'' she said, mimicking my accent. ''Still on the rye and cottage cheese, me. Want some of that instead?'' ''I think I shall partake in the consumption of the bagel, if it's all the same with you,'' I answered in a voice like the Queen's. ''I'm less partial to rye vita. Its resemblance to cardboard tends to disagree with me somewhat.'' Tess laughed out loud and popped a bagel in the toaster. Once the coffee and snacks were sorted, Tess said, let's go lark around in Larry's study. Why not your room, I asked. Oh, no, no, no. We can't go in there. It's in a dreadful state. Clothes all over the floor, and I won't allow the cleaner anywhere near it. Why not? She took a step closer towards me. For a moment, I thought she might explain. Then she backed off and laughed at herself. I suppose you must think I'm a bit of an oddball. I used to be a mad cow, you know, but I'm all right. now.
0: <laughs> I wasn't
1: sure what to think of her. <laughs> it's a joke, she said, jabbing me with her bony elbow. Moo no, moo, get it? She was nuts. <laughs> but she was funny too and there was something about her that I really liked. Although I had no idea what it
0: was. Oh. <laughs> Brilliant! Thank you very much, it's Zoe. Of course, you can hear Zoe. We, we we spoke before, didn't we, on the radio show on Literally Landed? Uh, so uh, you can uh, you can find a uh,
1: website, haven't you? Where, where's the best place it's to? Uh, ZoeAntoniades.com
0: ZoeAntoniOmedes.com Good, okay Well, uh, that's it for this week But I shall see you next time I'm Nick Hennigan This is Literary London On Residence 104.4 FM We're now going to (laughs) applaud